0: You know, I love being a church family because we get to do things like that. Um, we don't stand on formality here. We don't want to um, worry about, um, boy, are, is everything planned out? Is everything exactly, you know, um, it's wonderful to be a family and to celebrate together as a family when we have wonderful family moments happen like that. and And so God has been gracious to us and I'm looking forward to a lot more engagements and births and all kinds of things to celebrate and God's been bringing lots of fruit in many different ways in our church so Acts 21 verses 17 through 39 this is God's holy inspired word for each and every one of us today let's hear from him now when we had come to Jerusalem the brothers received us gladly on the following day Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he inquired who he was and what he had done, and some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I ask something? May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in every scripture, in every passage, you speak to us through your words. God, thank you that you empower your words with your very life. Father, we ask that your words would would do the work that you have purposed in our hearts and our minds. Would you awaken our hearts, awaken our minds, enable us to hear from you, enable us to apply your word to our hearts, that we might be doers of your word. And Father, I pray that you would enable me to effectively speak your words and communicate what you would have for your people. Father, we ask this not for our own glory, but Lord, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, my dad used to work a lot. It wasn't because he was a workaholic or anything like that. He he didn't make very much money, and he ended up working long hours. And so, as a result, he ended up working almost all the soccer games that I played in high school. And so, I I can't remember if he went to any other games, but I remember my very last game when I was a senior in high school, and we were playing for the the state championship game. And, And I remember that my mom and dad drove down separately... They drove down just in time to make the game and I was playing and I looked up and I saw them on the sidelines and it invigorated my desire to play. It gave me a desire to to keep going. And I remember that day, unlike most times, I, didn't, I asked to not be subbed out. I wasn't subbed out the entire time and I played the whole game. I was tired, but I was invigorated. Not only were we playing for a state championship, but my dad was there, my mom was there, and I wanted to play... Really, in a good way, because I wanted to play in a way that brought him honor and showed that you know what, Dad, I'm playing for my dad. And I remember I played my heart out that day, at one of my best games. And and what kept me going, looking up and seeing them, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop. You know, Paul, he kept going. It seems like he never he never got pulled out of the game, does it? If you've been reading through the book of Acts, Paul was continually, now it's not a game, but he was continually playing, right? He was continually on the field. He was continually working. He was continually diligent. He got tired. He got weary. But what sustained him was not an earthly view, an earthly father, but what sustained him was a view of God the Father and that he knew that Christ Jesus had made him his own and he was a citizen of heaven. Paul had a vision of God. He had a perspective that was secure in Christ, that he saw that he wanted to do everything for the pleasure of his heavenly Father. And so he was willing to give it as all. And, and last week we learned that Paul, everywhere he went, he kept hearing from people who would come up to him and say, "Paul, you're going you're to be persecuted, you're going to be afflicted, you're going to be imprisoned." Everywhere he went, from city to city, everywhere Paul went, he kept hearing that. Now, now Paul was human. He, he was prone to being discouraged and tired and weary. At times, it was very difficult for him, but what kept him going was that he had a sight of, of who he was working, who he was living for, of what all of this activity was for. It was for the pleasure of his Father. Who he was already secure in. He didn't have to earn favor. It's because he already had God's favor. Paul uniquely understood the grace of God. You know, last week we heard Paul said, I, I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul, he had been warned in every city that he encounter, he would encounter imprisonment and affliction. But he was willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the body of Jesus Christ. He was willing to risk everything because he realized that there is no more important cause, if you will, than the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no more important institution than that of the body of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul went into Jerusalem, he still went forward. You know, he gets there and then he goes the very next day. He didn't wait around. He wasn't timid. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to hang around and wait a little while and just see, will they really accept me? He he arrives and the very next day he goes in to see James and the brothers, all the elders of the church there. And when he arrives, Luke writes that they were gladly received as brothers. Now that's... No small thing, because if you are aware of the tensions historically in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, between Jew and Gentile, it's not a natural thing for there to be loving acceptance apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this motley group of Jew and Gentiles from all over Asia and Macedonia, they, they all come in and they're accepted with joy as fellow brothers and sisters and And children of the promise of Abraham. And the question for us as we read this, you know, I was thinking about that, just that that simple first verse. This isn't a, a main idea, it's not a main point, but, you know, I was thinking, do we receive people with that same gladness who naturally there might otherwise be animosity and differences with? Or do we let ethnic or cultural or other tradition divide us? Well, in verse 18, it tells us they only rested for night. They go into James and the brothers there and it appears that Peter and John for some reason are not present. Peter probably has moved on elsewhere and so has John. And so now James, the brother of Jesus, is leading the church in Jerusalem. And in a sense, this meeting between Paul and James, think about it. It's, it's the meeting of the, of the two greatest leaders of the Gentile church and the Jewish church, right? This is a, A major meeting. Paul is coming back from his third and final missionary journey. He's completed 25 years of ministry. He's coming to Jerusalem with a gift. He's coming to give a report. And here we have James, the brother of Jesus, leading the the mega church in Jerusalem. And people had to be wondering, what what will happen? Because didn't there seem to be some differences between these two guys or something? And people had, had spread rumors that... That Paul was saying that you shouldn't keep these customs and traditions of the Jews. That Paul had abandoned his Jewishness. And and they spread rumors that James was all about keeping the law. And so this is a, a significant meeting. Paul, by now, if you think about it, he's already written the letter to the Galatians. And if you have read the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatians, you know that in Galatians he's all about what? Grace. He's all about the grace of God and salvation comes by faith alone, by by grace alone through faith alone and not of any works so that we shouldn't boast. He clearly taught that there's no room for any merit when it comes to our right standing before God. And then juxtaposed with that we have James. He wrote in James 2, 17 he's teaching he says faith by itself if it does not have works is dead but someone will say you have faith and i have works show me your faith apart from your works and i'll show you my faith by my works wow is this a conflict here you know martin luther thought that was a conflict he got it wrong The reality is there's no conflict. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, but it results in us carrying out the works that God prepared beforehand for us. Works are never the means to receive or keep God's grace, but they're a result of God's grace. And so people in that day had gotten those two things wrong. They were a little confused. The followers of of James and the church in Jerusalem... (laughs) They thought that Paul was anti-works. Paul's followers might have, in reading Galatians, thought that he was anti-James. He said men came in from James, and Peter was discouraged from eating with the Gentiles, and he withdrew. And so it almost seems, is Paul blaming James? But he's not. And so when they get together, this could have been a very difficult scene, but Luke shows us something surprising, and I want you to notice that. And I think that's what... The main thing we're meant to see. See, Luke Luke writes in subtleties. He doesn't, he doesn't tell you his, his main ideas outright. He tells you the story and, and he leaves you to make observations and conclusions about it. So this account, I think Luke's showing us two different characteristics. And there's a ton of things we can learn from these verses. But just to focus in on a few things, he shows us at least two characteristics that were essential in this meeting. Essential... For the sake of the unity of this this Jewish and Gentile church and essential to the spread of the gospel. And the, and the main idea that I want to draw our attention to, that I want to draw out of these verses that I think Luke is, is painting a portrait for, is he's, he's showing us that humility and self-sacrifice. He's showing us pictures of humility and self-sacrifice and how they're necessary for the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. Humility and self-sacrifice is really what we see on display in these verses. And we see that apart from that, it could have been a very different meeting. It could have been a very different outcome. And so Luke writes, Paul goes into the James and the elders. It must have been quite a large gathering if there were thousands of Jews who believed. They probably had a very large pastoral team there. And he gives them a detailed report, it says, and he tells them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. I would have loved to have been there for that report. To hear the things one by one that that God did among the Gentiles. I think we have some of that in Acts, but we don't have all of that in Acts. You see, Luke's, Luke's writing not just as a historian, but Luke's writing as a theologian. He's using historical events to to drive points home. And so even here, we don't get to see what all these things are one by one that he tells them. But I can imagine, remember the story of Sergius Paulus, he's the proconsul, the the head of Roman government on the, the island of Cyprus, one of the early converts. Remember the synagogue leader who came to know Jesus? He must have recounted about the Gentiles who become Christians all over the regions of Galatia and Asia and Macedonia. He probably shared about Apollos. He probably shared about the people in Ephesus who were practicing dark arts and magic, who gave up their income and gave up their livelihood and sacrificed, It burned all those things to follow God and how really a revival took place in that town. He must have told about the converts in Thessalonica and Ephesus and Corinth, three of the larger cities in the Roman Empire. But did you notice, look down at verse 8 for a minute. Did you notice, whose work is Paul relating? Anybody, whose whose work is Paul relating here? Is he relating his work? No, he's relating God's work, right? It says he was relating all that God had done. He wasn't relating all that Paul had done. He was relating all that God had done. He wasn't bragging here. So, I, I was thinking about that. You know, So often, if I've done some great things, what's the first thing I want to do? I want to tell people about it. You know, I have this temptation, this desire to boast about things. And I'm not boasting about God in those moments. I'm, I have a desire to boast about, hey, look what I did. Wasn't that really cool? But Paul, he's not doing that. Paul, he was modeling humility that was aware, really, that God was the one who was at work. And this is the first characteristic that I think Luke's highlighting for us that I want to point out. And I think Luke's demonstrating through Paul's response and through how Paul interacted with James. He's demonstrating really that humility is necessary for the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. Humility is necessary for the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. Now, where am I getting that? Well, first off, Paul wasn't putting himself forward. Paul was humbling himself. Anybody here ever been around somebody who won't stop talking about themselves? You can raise your hand. It's okay. No, nobody here. No one here has been around somebody who won't stop talking about themselves. It's maddening, isn't it? It's kind of frustrating, you know. Sometimes I remember around one particular person. Nobody here, by the way, um, years ago. And I was just thinking, is there some way I can get out of this? Do I like faint? Do I, do I feign sickness? Do I, you know, do I feign a phone call? How can I get out of this with integrity? You know, just wondering, oh my gosh, they won't stop it. it's been like 30 minutes. And Paul, he, he wasn't doing that. He was, he knew that he was only a Christian. He knew that he was only an apostle <laughs> by the grace of God. That stopped him from being a legalistic persecutor of the church. Because otherwise, he would have been at odds with God. And Paul knew that. And he was humbled by that. By seeing God. So so Paul knew that anything good in him was, was from God. And his identity wasn't in his great pedigree. He even said that, you know, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. But I counted all that as rubbish. My whole pedigree did not matter. What school I went to did not matter. Yeah, I went to Gamaliel's school. It was the... I don't know, Howard or Oxford, whichever one you think is better of that day. But it didn't matter. It was nothing. Because his life was hidden in Christ. So Paul, he was pointing here to what God had done, not what he had done. And what it resulted in was worship of God. That's what the immediate response was. It wasn't, they weren't mocking him, they weren't belittling him, they weren't saying, yeah, Paul, that's great and all, but... um, so what? You know, No, they, they immediately responded. That it's, the result is important to notice. And Luke doesn't have any throwaway things that he writes. So look in verse 20, if you will. Luke writes that they glorified God. They heard about the evidence about God's grace. They responded not with jealousy or contempt or murmuring. They responded in worship. And I was convicted as I was reading that. Because I thought, you know, how often, I wonder, do I, how often do we, how often do you, Respond with worshiping God when you hear about what God's doing to someone else. You know, that's a, that's a sign of humility. I think the lack of that in my life, at least, is a sign of pride. Because I want, I want worship for me, not worship for God. And so Paul, though, he, he's, he's accounting all the things that, recounting all the things that God has done, and, and they respond worshiping God. Why? Because Paul's pointing to God, not himself. And so really this humility that Paul is demonstrating at the very outset is setting the stage for the unity of the church And what otherwise could have been a very difficult meeting. Paul's humility is kind of setting the stage for the unity of the church. I was thinking, boy, a common temptation for, for me, for all of us, is to be jealous. And you know, the, the sick thing is even being jealous about like people who serve in the church and are gifted in ways that we're not. You know, like, man, I wish I was gifted that way. Um, Really? If all of our gifts are meant to draw attention to God, then what does it matter who has what gift? You know, often we're just tempted to seek our own glory, to resent others, but... That's not the case here, the response to the glory of God. So James brings up, though, immediately, and this is kind of interesting, he immediately brings up something he must have been wrestling with, and so he immediately says, Paul, that's wonderful, we're going to glorify We glorify God. And then I don't know how long they did that, I don't know what the transition was like, but Luke gets to the point, he shifts gears really quickly, and look down in your Bibles, it says, Luke's bringing up the tension, James is bringing up the tension, this challenge they were all aware of, as a result of these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and so this council of elders has said, He says, you see, brother, in verse 20, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They were all zealous for the law. So he's bringing up this tension. They've all been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, James is not assuming that that's true, but he said, I know that they've been, they've been told these things. There's these rumors going around, and I'm hearing flying around saying, Hey, Paul, he's the one who teaches against against our customs, our traditions, our culture. And they're going to hear that you've come. So, Paul, help me out here. What what then is to be done? Because this is threatening the very unity of the body of Christ. But you see, before you you go off against the Jews, the Jews who had believed, they were zealous for the laws of Moses. And that was not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that they were looking for the law to give them right standing before God or make them acceptable before God. It says they were Jews who had believed. And that implies that they had not trusted in the law, but they had trusted in Jesus for their faith. And yet they were still zealous for the law. But you know what? We see that kind of zeal for law in another place in the Bible, and it's it's really commendable. And it was actually a forerunner of Christ who Jesus himself quotes. It was King David in Psalm 119. And if you've ever read Psalm 119, it's, it's, it's the longest chapter in the Old Testament. And what is it all about? It's extolling the praises of God's law, right? And King David actually says, he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules. All. At all times. My soul's consumed. I'm, I'm zealous. And the same was said of Jesus, that zeal for, for God's law consumed him. And that does not mean that he's looking for the law for attainment. What it means is that he saw, like, like Paul had written in Romans 7, 12, Paul wrote, he says, I see that the law is holy. I see that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now that was only after he understood that he could not keep God's commandments and that Jesus kept the commandments for him that he could see that, no, these commandments are actually are here for our good so that. That we can enjoy God more and reflect and image him more. But not to earn any merit. And so the Jewish believers, they are they are zealous for the teachings of Moses. Now they're also zealous for other things in that. that word there for the law. It's kind of all encompassing to include the traditions and customs too. This is not just the, the Ten Commandments that they're talking about here. This is a broad term that includes traditions and customs. And the problem is, this tension, the Jewish Christians are wrongly told that that Paul taught all the Jews to forsake the teachings of Moses and to not walk according to these traditions and customs. Can you see how that would threaten the unity of the church? Think for a moment. Are there things here that you assume that somebody else believes that threaten the unity of the church? Are there practices here that someone else practices that have potential to threaten you to the church? Are there traditions that you have as a family that someone else has a different tradition? Are there practices and customs that you hold? Maybe your family's held that for generations. Are there things like that in our own lives, in our own church, in our own home, in our own small groups that threaten the unity of the church? I bet there are, right? Because we're human. They weren't dealing with inhuman problems. You know, I get bugged when people don't do things my way. What's necessary in that moment? It's humbling myself, like we see Paul doing. Paul, he, he never taught the Jews must give up their culture and traditions. He taught that we're not justified by the law, and, and keeping the law can't save anybody. But he also, like I said in Romans 7, he said that the law is good and righteous. But these, these rumors are being spread. Rumors are dangerous, aren't they? Dangerous to that church, dangerous to this church, dangerous to any part of the body of Christ. We need to address them, we need to correct them, confront them. Because they're dangerous to the unity of the body of Christ and the cause of the gospel. And this issue that was being confronted was whether or not, and listen up, this, this issue that was being confronted was whether or not the gospel of Jesus Christ requires that all Christians hold the same customs and traditions. That's the crux, right? Does the gospel require that Christians either give up their customs and traditions or that they all perform the same customs and traditions? And that's what Luke's addressing here subtly. That's what James and Paul are talking about. Were Jewish Christians required to give up their meaningful traditions and customs and culture to become Christians? Or should all Christians become like Jewish Christians? Should Gentiles become like Jews and their customs and traditions? Could could Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, people of very diverse backgrounds and cultures, could they really get along in the same church? Can people in this church of different backgrounds and cultures and practices and preferences and cultures and traditions, can we get along in the same church? Do we have to all look alike, be alike, act alike? That's what these verses really are hitting at. Now look in verse 23. James and the elders, they tell Paul something. They say, Paul, there's a problem. There's a tension here. Now we want you to do something. And it's kind of shocking, actually. One, shocking, they ask it of him. Two, shocking that Paul does it. The, the shocking thing they ask him to do is they say, hey, Paul, we want you to do something. You know what? Because they accuse you of being against the law. Instead of saying, you know what? But Paul, we're going to support you. We're going to say, that's just not true. And so leave Paul alone. They don't do that. Instead, they ask him to do something that, that Paul did not have to do, did he? Did Paul have to do this? Well, by no means. He said, I'm, I'm free in regards to the law. But look what they ask him to do in verse 23. He says, take these four men who are under a vow and pay for them to complete their vow and get their heads shaven so they can all look like Mario. Um, so that you'll know that... That's okay. I'll, I'll, hey, I'll pay for four guys here who want to get their head shaven. I'll, I'll do that, right? That's my kindness. So we... No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, maybe I would actually. You know, I'll shave you myself. <laughs> but this was something more here. He was saying, "Do this so that they will know that you yourself live in observance of the law." This wasn't just a matter of paying for a haircut. You see, when, when people would go and, and take a vow like this, it was, it was called a Nazarite vow. It involved shaving of the head. And typically, they would take off. They would have to take about 30 days um, off to practice different ritual kind of cleansing. And they would be a part... And set apart from the community for a period and they would stop working to be prayer and prayer and fasting. And what that meant was, you know, this is a society where they got paid for that day's work. And so if they took off 30 days or a whole month of work, it was very costly to them and to their family. And so he's saying pay for, pay for these four men, you know, pay, pay a month per man, pay a quarter of a year's wages probably for these men to go through to complete that vow. You, you be the one to sponsor them through that. And then, you know what? You do the same thing yourself, but he, Paul didn't have 30 days, but he was going to join them in the end. And, and, and they probably told Paul to set aside seven days to be made clean. And so we see in, a, in the next verse or so that there's seven days of purification. That's referring to Paul there. But this was costly. a, a costly thing they're asking Paul to do personally. They didn't say, Paul, hey, take some of the money that you got from the church in Jerusalem. They said, no, Paul, you pay. You pay for these four men And then also at the end of that month time, not only were you paying to support those men, you were also paying for an offering that was made before the Lord at the completion of this Nazarite vow. So it would have been a very costly sum for Paul. And so it's shocking, not only are they asking Paul to submit to a custom and tradition he doesn't have to submit to, but they're asking him to take personal cost on himself. He's got to humble himself here, doesn't he? That's kind of a surprising request. Why? Because think about it for a second. Paul is an apostle, right? James is an apostle. James is not over Paul. James is not an authority over Paul. He's a fellow brother, a fellow apostle. Now, Paul, if he really wanted to, you know, kind of put himself forward, he said, James, that's really cool. You're over one church. I got 20, you know. Uh, But he didn't do that. He listened to James he swallows his pride. He swallows his pride and, and he set aside his own preferences and his own practice and he took up an unnecessary. Think about that. He took up an unnecessary practice for the sake of the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel to the Jews. But they asked him to do this so it would be obvious that he wasn't anti-law and anti-Jewish. At the same time, although James and the elders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem were affirming that keeping the law was good, this lest you think These verses are all about how we need to honor the Old Testament law. Luke makes sure he writes the the rest of what James says, and that that is that, you know what, Paul, do this so that the Jews here will see that what's more important is the unity of the church and the gospel and and, and that you're able to keep and observe the law. But at the same time, Paul, we're going to remind you that remember back in Acts 15, now they didn't have Acts 15 yet, but remember back at the Jerusalem Council a few years previously, We had a ruling, and we still hold to that ruling. And here's what our ruling is. In verse 25, look down your Bibles. It says, but as for the Gentiles who believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. What they're saying is that the Gentiles don't have to keep those Jewish customs and laws. You don't have to either. However, we're asking you to do that, to submit to that for the sake of the church and for the unity of the Jewish and Gentile churches. We're asking you to do that. And so please do what we tell you. That's kind of a bold ask, right? And so we see Paul's response in verse 26. He doesn't argue. He doesn't put up a fight or complain. He doesn't insist on in his own way. And you remember what Paul taught? The Philippians and in Philippians two, one through four. There he wrote, and I think we have it on the overheads for you. He wrote, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Ouch. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, because we already will do that, but he says, but also to the interests of others. He didn't have to do what they were asking him here. He didn't have to submit. But he humbly was seeking to willingly submit to his brothers. He was seeking to be humble himself and of the same mind of full accord. He wasn't acting out of rivalry and conceit. He was considering the Jewish believers as better than himself. He was looking out for their interests, even though that was really James's church. And so he could have just said, James, man, that's your problem. Look after your own church, right? But Paul didn't do that. He was looking after the interests of his fellow brothers and sisters. He didn't let his position or success or notoriety or the number of his followers get in the way of the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. Listen, we can can really learn from that, can't we? There's a lot to learn in these verses. You know, I was thinking about, you know, how can I learn? You know, for the sake of the unity of the church you and I might need to humble ourselves for the good of others by giving up recognition for what we do, right? You ever get discouraged when you serve and nobody says thank you? If you're honest, you'll say yes, at least internally right now. I do too, and, and, but you know, we need to encourage each other, and I think encouragement is, is an area that we can continue to grow in, and we need to make a concerted effort to encourage one another while still so we so we'll press on, but we need to be careful when we're when we're craving that kind of encouragement, because what's that, what's that saying is that I'm not doing this for the pleasure of God. I'm doing this because I want to have people notice me. But we need to humble ourselves and give up recognition at times. We need to humble ourselves by considering the need of others. We need to humble ourselves maybe by positioning ourselves as learners, or you know, submitting to somebody. Maybe maybe this is place where you struggle submitting to somebody who might not be you might not think at least is as gifted or as smart or as witty as you or maybe even they're they you think they're less gifted but maybe for the sake of the unity of the body of christ he calls us to listen to others and Maybe at times he calls us to, you know what, listen, like Paul was listening to the advice of James and the elders there. Maybe he calls us to listen to the advice of our brothers and sisters. Maybe even take their counsel to heart. As long as it doesn't go against God's word, by the way. Which this request was not. You know, ask yourself, is, is there an area, ask yourself the question, is there an area where I am considering my own preference or my own interest above the body of Christ? If so, you should ask yourself, how can I humble myself practically? How can I put the unity of the body and the spread of the gospel ahead of my own interests? How can I, how can God, how are you calling me to humble myself and put the unity of this body that you made me a part of and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how can I put those ahead of my own interests? That's what that's what Paul was doing here. And I think that's what Luke's highlighting for us. And the second characteristic that we see though in Paul is not just humility, but we see something, humility in action really, it's self-sacrifice. We see that self-sacrifice is the second characteristic I want to draw attention to, that self-sacrifice is necessary for the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. This, this practice of taking a vow, it, it would have re- required a financial loss, so they're asking Paul to pay for these things. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd immediately jump at the opportunity to, to give up mm, four plus months of my salary. Sure, do what I tell you. Oh, great, this is for the universe Church. Yes, I think I'll do that. But, but Paul was willingly out of his, out of his own means, and he, he, he said in Acts and in his other letters that he worked with his own hands to provide and to sponsor them, to also join himself. And he was willing to carry out this unnecessary tradition to sacrifice himself, to sacrifice his pride, to sacrifice his money, his time, his effort, for the sake of the unity of the church and the gospel of jesus and he was counting the unity of the church and 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 the gospel witness to these jews not only the people who already had believed in jerusalem but i bet he also had in mind the jews in jerusalem who had not yet believed if they heard about paul And he was thinking, the gospel, I don't want them to be a stumbling block to the gospel. I don't want my behavior to be a stumbling block. I want them to see, but it's okay for them to continue their traditions and come to Jesus. The gospel is not about our traditions. And so he sacrifices himself here. Counts them as more significant. I I was thinking about my own life, and to my shame, I've often not counted others as more significant than me. Often I've, I've not... Looked out for others' interests, but looked out for the interests of number one, right? As if I am number one. Now the good news is that all of us who think that way, me and all of you, were forgiven for all that. If you place your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness from that. There's, there's grace and hope to change, to not be like that. Why? Because he no longer, God no longer looks at us according to our sins and our failures and our weaknesses and our selfishness. And now we're able to willingly sacrifice because he has sacrificed for us. And so, I know that God's at work in me through all these things to make me gradually more like Jesus, just like he's working each and every one of you who place your faith in him. And it's my prayer, not just for me, but for all of us, that we might all look not only to the interests of ourselves, but to the interests of each other, that we might be willing to sacrifice our preferences and Maybe our money, our time, our effort for the sake of the unity of the church and for the, for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the unity of the body of Christ is at stake at times like this when, when we have preferences and traditions and customs that differ from others. The, the spread of the gospel is challenged. When there's people who aren't like us and they have different preferences than us. I remember, I think it was probably 95. I was zealous for the things of God. I was passionate. and, and But I got in an argument with a fellow brother about ham. <laughs> I kid you not. It, it's ridiculous. Um, he felt like God was leading him to give up Ham. Is it fine to give up ham? Sure, it's fine to give up ham. Now, I would miss ham. I would miss bacon more. But um, he, he gave up all pork products. He, he, he thought like he was gonna. He, he thought it was wise to give up pork products. He wasn't preaching to other people had to give up pork products in order to be accepted before God. And and um, we got into like a two-hour-long argument about whether he should give up pork products or not. You know. And how ridiculous. And It got so heated that it ended up being a, a rift and an awkward spot in our relationship. And I was judgmental and self-righteous towards him. And then that also crept into other areas and preferences with the same guy. And I remember he used to like to play these, um, what had just came out at the time was these online text-based, you know, they didn't have the web back then. Um, shows you how old I am. Um, these text-based Massive online role-playing games, and he was really into that, and and he was really into muscle cars and all these things that I had just zero interest in, like like less than zero interest. And and it's funny, I, I let those things come between our Christian unity, and he was a, a part of um, the college ministry that my wife and I helped start, and, and yet. Um, it, there was a rift in our relationship and it, and it caused disunity and it actually um, hurt the spread of the gospel of Jesus on the campus there that we were at in George Mason. You know, we think about it. Isn't that silly? What's ham? right? What's bacon even, you know? What's, what are hobbies and what are preferences or cultural differences or traditions that I don't like or might not agree with? How about you? What are those things for you that you let bother you that are, in the scheme of things, are relatively insignificant? Now, they might be important in your life. They might be important to you. There might be even a practice that you really value and that you love. Maybe it's something that's really sensitive to you. But do those things threaten the unity of the body of Christ? Do you let them get in the way of threatening the unity of the body of Christ? Your different traditions or customs and practices. What's necessary in those moments is self-sacrifice. You know, one of the problems, if you look back in the 20th century, of a lot of American missionaries, now this was actually unique to American missionaries who were coming out of this idea that somehow the gospel of Jesus Christ and... um, capitalism were somehow linked, that somehow being an American and being a Christian were synonymous, in which they are not. And so these American missionaries, they would go out and they would try to, to share the gospel with people in other nations, but they didn't just do that. They tried to really force these people to look like American Christians. And it was a barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Christianity is not about a country. At least not any countries here. See, our citizenship is in heaven. Not in any any country here. Although, yes, I'm grateful for our country. But Christianity is not about what color of skin you have. Not where you come from. Not what country you live in. It's not about what social or economic background you have. The good news is the Son of God took on human flesh he was born a Jew so that not only Jews but people from every tongue and tribe and nation can be reconciled to God and be adopted as God's children. All of us as children of Abraham, children of the promise, as a new humanity in Christ. Now there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, young or old, rich and poor, all are one in Jesus Christ. And so you think about what are some of those petty differences that separate us, that divide us? Divide humanity. These differences can divide humanity because of sinful pride. You know, those things no longer matter for our identity. Because the identity of a Christian should be and really is found solely in Jesus Christ. He has made us who we are and all that we have is in him. Like we sang earlier, all I have is in Christ. Now, we don't ignore those differences that we have, right? We can talk about them. We can acknowledge them. We can celebrate those differences. You know, we can celebrate that we look different. We act different. We talk different. Some of us have different accents, different preferences. Instead of letting those things divide us, we can submit those things to the rule of Jesus and consider others as more important than our differences and practices. Why? Because we can be secure knowing that those differences don't make us who we are, right? If you're from the north or you're from the south or you're from the midwest which is not really the midwest or if you're from the middle of the country or if you're from the west your identity should not and is not as a Christian found in where you come from. It's found in the fact that you've been adopted into another country and that you have another citizenship and your identity is in Jesus now. And so our... our acceptance in christ listen to this i think we need to hear this at times our acceptance in christ it doesn't lie in our choice of political party it doesn't lie in our acceptance doesn't lie in how we dress or our stance on drinking alcohol or whether we like sports or not our acceptance doesn't lie in our ethnic backgrounds or what accent we have, or how we choose to disciple our children, or how we dress our children, or, or whether we work as a teacher, or a nurse, or a doctor, or a realtor, or a stay-at-home mom, and an engineer, or a tree trimmer, or a pastor. That is not where our identity lies. Our identity is not found, and whether we're from a different area of the country, or whether we're, we like to call ourselves, you know, I'm, I'm a city guy, I'm a redneck, I'm a, I'm refined or I'm unrefined, or whether you have long hair or short hair or whether you have no hair, whether you can grow a beard or not, or how long and how bushy your beard is, who cares, right? Praise God for big beards. Praise God for guys who can't grow beards, right? Whether we can cook or bake delicious foods like Bobby Flay or Kat Cora, if you've ever watched the Food Network before. Or if you can barely open up a can of Chef Boyardee and boil water. There's some here that can't do that, right? So, I mean, you'd laugh, but that's not our identity. Our identity is not any of those things. As Christians, we, we, can, we can take or leave our preferences and our cultures and our, our tastes, our tradition, because, because of one thing, because our security is, is not affected by those things. Our security in who we are. It's in whose we are, right? To be a Christian, then, it means to die to yourself and live to Christ. What does you say? If you want to be my disciple daily, take up your cross. What does a lot of taking up your cross mean? It means dying to yourself. Why? Because other people threaten your preferences. Sometimes dying to yourself is because, it's necessary, because there's a lot of other people that are not like yourself. So sometimes we have to submit our freedom for the good of others, just like we we must sometimes allow others to exercise their freedoms where we might not be free. So we have to submit our freedoms where we're free sometimes. And we have to allow other people to be free where we're not personally free, where we're convicted personally, where where the Bible does not speak directly to. We have to let other people disagree with us in those ways. Sometimes we submit our preferences to them, Right? So that's what Paul is doing here. He's he's self-sacrificing. He's humbling himself. Why? For the sake of the unity of the church and the spread of the gospel. You know, Paul. You know, think about him in the middle of his rebuke to the Galatians for for trusting in law. He called them, "Oh, foolish Galatians! Who's bewitched you? You didn't begin this thing on your own. How are you going to complete it on your own?" But then, in, in chapter five of Galatians, in Galatians five thirteen, he says. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And they must have been like, Yay, we're called to freedom. We can throw off every restraint and everything. And we don't have to comply with any rules. We don't have to worry about what people think about us. We don't have to worry about how we live in front of other people. But he doesn't say, he says, Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for what? For the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul, he's practicing what he preached. He submits to them. He gives notice and he pays for the purification he's he together with makes a vow and he shaves his head but unfortunately his example his self-sacrifice didn't always accomplish what you wanted. it didn't always accomplish what he wanted in this case um it got him in trouble now i believe it actually preserved the unity of the church still and and that's why luke gave this example for us so the unity of the church was preserved in history as well but we see how they responded the Jews from Asia, and most likely they were from Ephesus. How do I know that? Because they said they recognized Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. Um, this was right before the Feast of Pentecost. And during that day, like two million people would swell into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. The so Jews from all over the, all over the Roman world would come. And so they recognized Paul, Jews from Asia recognized Paul, and they respond violently towards him. They lie. They they say that Paul's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and even though it wasn't true, it sure stirred people up, didn't it? And then whether on purpose or not, and I think that Luke's giving them throwing him a bone here, and he says, you know, well, the second that part they lie, but the second part, they saw Trophimus the Ephesian in the city. They probably saw him in the in the Gentile courts of the temple, but the Gentiles were not allowed past a certain gate under penalty of death. And so they assumed that Paul had violated the Jewish law and allowed the Gentile there, but he hadn't done that. He hadn't defiled the temple. But it didn't matter because here's the problem. The identity of the Jews who accused him was in their customs and in their law. Their hope for themselves and for Israel, it was in their obedience to law and the, and the sanctity of the temple. They didn't know. That God's presence had departed from the temple that when Jesus died, and that, that all remained was a building. They're putting their hope in the sanctity, the purity of the temple, and the keeping of the law that will never save. And so Luke tells us all the city was thrown into commotion and in a riot. And he, he tells, he paints this very violent picture. And you can read through the book of Acts, and you can tell, oh, they, they dragged Paul out and they were getting ready to kill him. And this was brutal. They seized Paul. They, the whole city was stirred up. Can you imagine? That's a lot of people. They all rush in together. They seize him. They drag him out of the temple. And those, those Gentile gates were shut. Those courts were, were shut. And I, I wonder if Luke is being a little symbolic here as well. Not just, not just are they shutting Paul out of the temple, but, but really are they resisting the gospel once and for all because their identity was in the law and those practices. Well, in any case, the scene was a very violent, frightening one. They were trying to get rid of the supposed defiler of the temple. And Luke writes, they seized him, they dragged him out. And the Jews, and look at verse 31, the Jews were beating him now, and their goal was to try to kill him. They weren't just kind of punching him one, two. This was a mob. This was a riot. They were angry, and they were trying to kill him by beating him. They weren't just trying to teach him a lesson. They wanted to kill him. I can imagine he probably was on the ground. They were kicking him. They were hitting him. He was—he's probably had broken bones or at least bruised bones. He was probably bloody. He must have been a, a horrible, bloody mess. But thankfully, God used unrighteous men... The flawed earthly government authority that was in power, he used Roman soldiers, and he rescues Paul from death. Luke says that when this with this tribune, the chief commander of the, the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem, when he he heard this uproar, he looked down, and and they would have been in the in the corner of the um, the temple kind of area right outside the temple, they've been able to look down and see the courtyard, and so he saw that, and he runs down with a bunch of centurions and a bunch of soldiers, and when the crowd sees him, they stop beating Paul. I'm sure Paul's like looking up, you know, through the swollen eyelids. <laughs> Glad you showed up, you know. And then it says that the, the, the mob was so violent that, you know, Paul wasn't making it fast enough, probably from his injuries. He wasn't walking fast enough. The mob was so violent, they thought he was going to kill him still, and they, they didn't think that soldiers would be able to, to, to go that slow. And so they hoist Paul up on their shoulders, and they carry Paul out on their shoulders right that's a pretty dramatic way to exit right and so paul is on the way of being carried out he's beaten he's bruised he's probably bloody he's suffering and and yet as he's being carried out he he says hey can i can i ask you something yeah and the guy says "You, you greek and Paul then identifies himself, and he says, "He says, I am a Jew. You know, earlier, whenever Paul was confronted with the Roman authorities, he, he didn't identify himself as a Jew primarily. He said, I'm a citizen of Rome, right? But even in the midst of Paul being abused by the very people he was trying to serve and preserve the unity of for the sake of the spread of the gospel, In the middle of that, Paul is still thinking about how he can serve his fellow brothers and he identifies himself. He says, I'm a Jew. Now, I'm also a citizen of Tarsus, a Roman citizen is what he was saying there. And he makes a point that he's a Jew. I'm I'm still a Jew. I'm not going to turn my back on them. I'm not going to disinherit them even though they turn their back on me because this gospel mission is too important for that even though it meant personal sacrifice and and just think about this whole account. Luke is the same one who gave us the gospel of Luke and, and he's giving us a lot of parallels here. Just like his savior, Paul was rejected by his own people. Just like Jesus, Paul was arrested and put in prison without just cause. Just like the Lord, people lied about him and falsely accused him. Just like Jesus, Paul heard the violent shouts of the crowd crying away with him. There's a lot of parallels there. But, but Jesus' face was set to the, towards the cross for, for the sake of those he might win. Now Paul, because he had already been made one with Christ, because his future was secure, he could give up his preferences. He could give up himself. He could sacrifice himself for the sake of that very same good news. You know, this, this good news that we talk about a lot in this church, this, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this news that Jesus came to, to take God's wrath that we deserve for rebelling against Him, this good news that He came to pay the price for all of the sins against God that we had accrued, that He paid our ransom to set us free, He took our place, and that God then took the righteousness of Christ and gave it to us. This good news, it was everything to Paul. And it really is everything to us. And he was consumed by a passion to live for God because of how God had made him alive. Paul, he he looked up and he could see God. And he was motivated by the fact that he was now a child of God. He was fully accepted in God. And and for the sake of the unity of the church and the gospel, Paul laid aside preferences, sacrificed, humbled himself. You know, think about it. Jesus didn't die for a country here on earth, did he? He didn't die for a system of government. He didn't die for a political party. Jesus didn't die for certain practices. Jesus didn't die for one culture or one language. He died for his bride, his body, the church. That's the institution, if you will, that he saw as most valuable to give everything for. That's our motivation is because he's given everything for us. And now because our future in him is secure, because no one can take us away from that. No one can rip out our identity in Christ. We're secure in him no matter what anybody says about us, right? It doesn't matter. All those preferences and things like that don't matter. So with that, let us ask ourselves, in what ways is God calling me to respond in light of who I am in him? In light of the fact that he has he has taken me along on this mission with him and he says, yeah, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to come with me and give your life to what matters most. In light of that, what do we need to give up? How do we need to humble ourselves? What preferences we need to set aside? Secure an identity. Well, let's stand. And I want to close with singing this song, All I Have is Christ, so if the band will go ahead and come forward. Let's just pray for a moment as they're getting ready. Father, thank you that we, we don't humble ourselves uh, to earn any favor before you. We don't set aside those preferences that you'll be impressed. We want to do those things, Lord, in, in worship to you because of what you've done. God, you've set us free. You're all we have. Our identity is found in you. Our hope is found in you. Our right standing is found in you. And so God, let us set aside everything else and let us sing praises to you in our daily lives, Lord, that all we have is you. And so Father, we want to live for you and everything for the sake of the unity of the church and the spread of your good news. In your name we pray.